You listen to this podcast every day because it's your KC local reliable news source. You take us seriously. But you know, we like to get down and we want you to party with us. Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host, Ari Shapiro, is the featured guest at this party, and it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Sponsorship packages and ticket information are available at kcur.org slash radioactive. Up to date wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. This is Up to Date on KCUR 89.3. I'm Steve Kraske. As war rages across the globe, mass shooters take aim at innocent civilians and homicides continue to climb. Graphic images and videos of events can find their way to social media. Whether intentionally searching for the extreme content or maybe you happen to scroll across the raw realities of the world, society is becoming immersed in a sensory experience that could lead to real trauma. Today, I'm speaking with Douglas Young. He's a senior behavioral and social scientist at the RAND Corporation about the reality of secondary trauma and how social media plays a role. Doug, thanks for taking some time with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Now, we've talked about this term secondary trauma on our program in the past, specifically how a spouse was experiencing PTSD due to to her husband's difficulty with PTSD. But what you've recognized is how the everyday general population could be experiencing secondary trauma here related to their consumption of social media. Let's first define what is secondary trauma, Doug? Secondary trauma is the idea that you don't have to be directly involved in something traumatic to still be affected by it, as you said. Um, so if you think about natural disasters, car crashes, you know, shootings, these are things that, that happen with some frequency. Um, and there are the police and the paramedics that respond to them. There are the uh, ER nurses or the therapists that deal with the aftermath. Um, so secondary trauma is not something that's new to these folks. But, um, you know, these days, thanks to technology like social media, it can now affect pretty much anyone. Hmm. So we could be talking about the spouse of a soldier or a spouse of a police officer, but some ex- examples you might not think of are drone operators and social media content moderators. Tell me a little more about how you see this affecting drone operators or social media content moderators. Yeah, if you think about drone operators, so um, they're they're doing their job like a lot of us. So, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of us shifted to working from home. Now, imagine if your job was to fight a war from home. Um, and that's essentially what a lot of these drone operators are are doing. They're um, engaging in surveillance or um, actual combat sometimes, but they're doing so from a behind a computer screen, usually um, on a military base, probably in the country. Um, and they're I- immersed in this reality of, of uh, war and then when the shift is over, they go home like a lot of us, you know, with our long commutes and get the kids ready for school or whatever it may be. And that disconnect between what they see and the lived reality that they have at home is the kind of thing that especially people don't recognize that that um, that discrepancy can lead to a, a sort of trauma. The New York Times just had a devastating story about uh, a drone operator and the impact on his family. You know, another sector of the population that might uniquely be struggling with this is intelligence analysts. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so my colleague Heather Williams um, uh, has, has has spoken powerfully about this, and um, in, intelligence analysts, um, just like drone operators, other people working to keep us safe, um, deal with some pretty uh, uh, tr uh, dramatic and traumatic stuff. Um, and the the real difference for them, or the real, maybe unique aspect of their job, is that they can't really talk about it with the rest of us. And so, if you think about um, the kinds of things that do often help people who are struggling with um, with trauma or other mental health issues. It's connecting with family and friends. It's, it's sharing things with, you know, say, a mental health professional. Intelligence analysts can't do any of that. So they're, they're left um, essentially with, um, without a resource that a lot of us uh, might have. But one of your points here is that more broadly speaking, really anyone with access to technology scrolling through their Facebook feed, seeing images of the war in Gaza, the latest police shooting, a lot of people can be exposed to this stuff. Yes, that's right. Um, there's more and more of this content out there. Um, people post it for a lot of different kinds of reasons, and it's it's just amplified on social media. So it's easier than ever for uh, members of the general public, for us, to come across this content, whether you're looking for it or, or you weren't. And to underscore your point here is your concern is that by regularly seeing and having access to this content, it's going to have an adverse impact on your on the mental health of lots of people. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think, um, you know, seeing this kind of stuff. Um, well, we, we know from research that the people who do have to see it regularly, uh, we talked about content moderators a little bit earlier. That's their job to look at the stuff that's too awful for even the rest of us to see. And so we know that they, they that they're suffering mental health impacts from that. Um, so it's easy to see the same kinds of things happening. Uh, to, to, to the rest of us. And you wonder about our kids who are being exposed to this as well. Are there signs to look for that might suggest that even a child might be experiencing secondary trauma? It's probably the same kinds of things to, uh, secondary trauma is trauma. So the signs that you might look for in any other um, circumstance that you're probably used to seeing uh, would be the things to look for. So if you know something about your kids and what they're normally like, if there's uh, a, a change in how they respond and how they act in their behaviors, um, if they show interest or, or show lack of interest in things they, they previously did, all the same kinds of things you might normally look out for. We'll be back in just a minute. You know, is there a potential upside to all this by essentially getting a front and center look at the atrocities of war or seeing the tragic misconduct of police officers? Is there any beneficial side to that kind of exposure? Um, there are some benefits to uh, having this content out there in the world. Um, so for us as individuals, I think a lot of what we'd like to do, or uh, was, I, I certainly try to just stay aware and keep up with what's going on in the world. And so seeing that reality, becoming aware of it, um, I think can, can be beneficial for us as, as citizens. More broadly, I think that by what, what these videos show um, can serve as a record, essentially, for, um, for, for analysts, for investigators, uh, for people who want to uh, maybe do something about things that, um, like you said, like maybe misconduct, so to investigate, to hold people responsible or accountable. You know, like we've mentioned, sometimes we're not looking for this content as you scroll through your social media feed, but it's 
in some ways really forced on us. Are there perhaps ulterior motives or an agenda for the heads of these companies feeding us this information? Well, there are certainly incentives for pri- uh, for private companies who are largely the developers of this kind of technology and the uh, and you know of, certainly of the social media platforms. There they have in certain incentives to show more. Um, they might call it engaging content, and and that's primarily because their business depends on more eyeballs so that um, they can sell more ads. And so um, I don't think there's any, um, I would not ascribe any you know, nefarious agenda to them, um, but the algorithms are designed to keep people engaged and the kinds of stuff that I think the algorithms have um, settled upon or, or, or discovered is that the more extreme that content is, and in this case, the more graphic or violent it may be, um, is the kind of stuff that um, keeps people around. You know, Doug, the other thing I wonder about is to the extent to which we as a society are becoming desensitized to so much of this content. I mean, a mass shooting happens in America and we hardly blink anymore as the same maybe with some of these war images out of the Gaza Strip. Yeah, I don't know if we're getting desensitized um, as a society or as individuals. I'm sure that depends um, on the individual, how we respond to it. But um, as we said, there is certainly much more of this, uh, of these traumatic events. There's more of this content, um, you know, be being pushed out there. And so it's just a lot of it for anyone to process. So as we wrap up this conversation, what kinds of recommendations would you throw out to the general population about how folks might protect their mental health in this crazy era that we're living in right now? There are definitely things that we can do to protect our mental health, um, you know, starting with just with just that, uh, protecting our overall mental health. So this might be doing the things your mom or your doctor told you to do, you know, sleeping enough, exercising, eating well, staying in touch with your family and friends um, in your community. Um, on social media, you might consider what uh, mental health experts might call having a he- healthy social media diet. So paying attention to what you're consuming, how much of it, and when you're consuming it. So just like you might not want to Um, you know, mindlessly eat junk food, you might not want to passively continue to scroll through your social media feed. So that Mm -hmm. might mean paying attention to um, why am I seeing this right now? You know, why why is that and how am I responding to it? Um, And then just beyond that, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of ideas out there for how we as a society might deal with the issue of social media. Um, uh, and, and the kinds of harms that might might come from it, um, and these range from you know outright bans to restricting access for kids, um, to uh, working with the tech companies to you know to to alter those al- algorithms against that um, you know uh, you know engagement and eyeballs that we talked about. So, you know, there needs to be you know some sort of research to help understand what works so we, that we can take action. Um, but it won't be easy, and it'll probably take all of us in one way or, or another, but it's also a problem that I really see as, as potentially affecting us all. Okay, that's Douglas Young. He's a senior behavioral and social scientist at the RAND Corporation, talking to us about the reality of secondary trauma and how social media plays a role. Doug, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You bet. Up to Date is a production of KCUR 89.3. The program is produced by Zach Wilson, Elizabeth Ruiz, Claudia Brancart, and Hallie Jackson. Our intern is Elizabeth Erb. Paul Nakatura is our announcer and engineer. The theme music was composed by the great Bobby Watson. I'm Steve Kraske. Thanks for listening.